This episode of Disease Du Jour is brought to you by equinevetedu.com, a free online educational platform for veterinarians, vet students, and vet techs, brought to you by Equimanagement. Visit equinevetedu.com for free race-approved CE and courses on topics of current interest. Welcome to Equimanagement's podcast, Disease Du Jour, where each podcast will delve into the research and current best practices for a variety of equine health problems with industry experts. I'm your host, Kimberly Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. Today's guest is Dr. Angela Pelzel-McCluskey, who is a national equine epidemiologist for the United States Department of Agriculture, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Veterinary Services, and she's based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Dr. Pelzel McCluskey obtained her doctorate in veterinary medicine in 2001 from Texas A&M University. In 2017, she received a master's of science degree in immunology and infectious disease from Washington State University. She was in equine private practice in both Texas and Colorado and has served as an epidemiologist with state and federal animal health agencies since 2004. Dr. Pelzel McCluskey currently oversees the federal response to reportable equine disease outbreaks nationwide, and she has been the lead epidemiologist for more than 30 state, regional, and national disease outbreak responses during her combined state and federal service. Thank you, Dr. Pelzel McCluskey, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about equine infectious anemia. Thanks for having me, Kim. So let's talk a little bit about what is equine infectious anemia? Sure, so EIA, as we call it, is a viral disease of horses that we've known about since about the 1970s. Um, it's a retrovirus, which means it really does attack the horse's immune system and can make them prone to many other diseases. It's also a disease, unfortunately, that we don't have any sort of vaccination for to prevent, and we don't have a cure to fix it once those horses become infected. It's something that's transmitted by biting flies, and certain biting flies are really the most common vectors, mainly horse flies and deer flies. They're animals that typically have those very uh, cutting mouth parts that create really big lesions in the horse when they bite, and they can soak up a lot of blood in their mouth parts, which is typically how we transmit EIA viruses through the blood of a horse. And why is this disease reportable? So this disease has been an industry reportable disease for a very long period of time. When we found out that the, what the disease does to the horse and how it's a lifelong infection that we can't control or fix, the equine industry got behind the idea that we really needed to control and potentially in the future maybe even eradicate the disease. But the control program was really what the industry was bound to do. And in order to do a control program at a national level, you have to make that disease reportable so that you can manage the cases when you find them. And what are the what does EIA do to a horse when it's infected? Sure. So it can cause a variety of clinical signs in the horse, and some of them can be very severe, up to and including sudden death, which you don't even know what happened, but you have a horse that, that dies unexpectedly. But in most cases, we see very mild or minimal clinical signs that are kind of insidious in nature, meaning they sort of creep up over time. Things where the horse doesn't respond well to mild respiratory infections or things like that. A low-grade chronic anemia is really common with these horses, hence the name. Um, but they can have a variety of signs. They can sometimes look like colic, poor doing, weight loss, things like that. I think the most common clinical sign, however, is no clinical sign at all, 
which is very frustrating because you would hope that you would get some indication that the horse was infected so that you could test it or take it to your veterinarian. Um, most of these chronically infected horses, if they survive the acute stage of the disease that might have clinical signs, they become without clinical signs at all, other than a mild anemia that most owners wouldn't notice. And they do typically continue to perform at their top level or close to it once they become in that chronically infected EIA horse. And one of the things that you have discovered over the past few years is that there is a demographic that is prone to this disease now. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So when we first discovered this disease in the 1970s and then through till about 10 years ago or so, the typical type of horse that you would see that was becoming infected was getting the, the virus from the fly vectors in a natural transmission situation. And they were horses that were typically uh, untested or under-tested populations of horses. So horses that may have been turned out in a certain area where EIA was prevalent and just not tested or monitored or managed and certainly no vector mitigation was used. That was the typical EIA positive horse that you would find in the past. Um, we have had a change in the epidemiology just in the past 10 years, which has been pretty surprising. Um, blood, as I said, is a common way to transmit this disease. So aside from the vector transmission with the biting flies, if people inappropriately use medical equipment that might be contaminated with blood, that can also transmit the disease from a positive horse to what was a negative horse. So things like reuse of needles and syringes, reuse of IV sets, overt blood doping to try to improve the athletic performance of a horse, or even simple things that you might not think about, like double dipping into to a multi-dose drug vial where you've contaminated that drug vial with blood that someone else might draw out of later. Um, those types of things can spread the virus um, from horse to horse, and we call that iatrogenic transmission, meaning we had a human involved and we had some sort of a medical procedure involved that was blood-contaminated movement from one horse to another. So the new demographic of horse we're seeing is this iatrogenic transmission situation. And unfortunately, what we're finding the most common group of horses that have this situation is our quarter horse race horses. We have many things that are happening among owners and trainers of quarter horse race horses that we're recognizing are transmitting the disease to a much higher level than we ever thought was there before. And when we're talking about this, we want to kind of emphasize that this is not veterinarians that are having bad practices. These are lay people who are doing procedures or using some sort of needle to either do legal or illegal drugs um, or blood doping on these horses. And you see it, you have told me that you see this a lot in the bush track, maybe not the A-leagues of quarter horse racing. Sure, so I've actually seen it at all, at all levels, but I think the most common place where we get the largest clusters of positive cases is in that illegal bush track racing situation. These are folks that are racing illegally in many states. There are no rules or drug testing or all of those things that protect the welfare of our horses at sanctioned tracks. And so they could administer anything and everything that they want to these horses, and they do. And the methodology that they're using is this needle and syringe and IV set methodology to give the horses these drugs or products or other things pre-race um, where we're getting transmission through those mechanisms. But then you might have these horses that become these silent carriers of EIA, 
and they may move into an A track or they may move into the private sector. So what would happen in those cases? How might that proceed? Sure. So we actually see that kind of frequently. Um, we find that horses that get very good in the bush track situation and they're making a lot of money on those bush tracks, they would prefer that those horses race at a higher level. It, it's sort of a something that the owner and trainer wants to see the horse excel and wants to show the horse at a higher level and, and gain notoriety from that. And so they'll enter those horses in sanctioned races. Uh, sometimes back and forth between bush track and sanctioned races. And unfortunately when they do that, they're exposing our cleaner sanctioned race population to EIA or potentially other bloodborne diseases like equine pyroplasmosis or anaplasmosis or others. And what about uh, when you see some of these horses getting out into the, um, let's say that the slaughter market or the rescue market and then Un owners unknowingly will take these horses back to a rescue or their own properties. Sure, that's certainly a problem. Um, even horses that have left the sanctioned racing quarter horse industry and get go into another sport such as barrel racing or roping or western sports, western performance, um, those, those horses may be taking EIA or pyroplasmosis with them into those new populations and causing more exposure. Um, as you've said, we have other avenues where when horses leave racing, they may end up in a rescue facility, they may end up in a slaughter channel, they may be purchased out of that channel and taken home by someone who cares about rehabilitating that horse and bringing them back into the mainstream. And unfortunately, we have positive EIA positive and pyropositive horses that are going through those channels and are making it back into the mainstream population where they serve as a risk to other non-infected horses that, that may now be exposed. Let's talk a little bit about the ramifications for these positive horses. How do veterinarians help owners to understand that they don't have a lot of choices with these horses that are positive and if they bring them home and expose their own horses it could be a death sentence. Sure, it's very serious. So your options if you were to have an EIA positive horse are really limited unfortunately. Our choices at this point are either euthanasia of the horse or lifetime quarantine of the horse 200 yards away from all other horses, which is certainly a welfare problem for a horse. They're herd animals. They want to be with their friends. Living alone for the remainder of their natural life is not a good welfare um, and emotional situation for a horse. So these two options are, are both rather negative. And the reason is because we don't have a treatment or a cure to be able to bring those horses back to health. And eventually this is a virus that will damage their health over time. So Dr. Pelzel McCluskey, what recommendations would you make to veterinarians in the field that they can help their clients be more educated about EIA? Sure, so our practitioners right now are our first line of defense in being able to, to construct some education outreach programs relative to this disease or other bloodborne pathogens that might be transmitted this same way. Um, really, we need a lot of communication to the horse owners about some of the things that they're doing with horses. First of all, how they're managing their horses at home, um, whether they're giving their own vaccinations or they're doing things with needles and syringes or providing their own treatment for simple things like colic or laminitis or other things. Um, how to properly use these medical supplies so that they're not going to transmit bloodborne pathogens of any type from one horse to another within their facility. Also, we have to make these horse owners aware of what are the high-risk populations for this disease and other bloodborne diseases so that they can be extra cautious about purchasing a horse or taking a horse from one of these avenues that might be of high risk. 
If we have owners that are taking horses from a quarter horse race situation, from a rescue situation where we don't know their history, testing these horses for EIA and pyroplasmosis is really an important thing. It's part of the welfare of the animal and it's part of the responsibility of the new horse owner to make sure that they're bringing a healthy, clean horse into their facility and population and not exposing their other horses to disease. So Dr. Pelzel McCluskey, Let's talk about, you know, how many cases do we actually see of EIA and where are you, where are these horses coming from? Sure. So historically, probably more than 10 years ago, we typically saw horses in the Gulf Coast region of the U.S. and, and they were getting infected by this natural flyborne transmission that we've known about for many years because the Gulf Coast is called the swamp fever area and this is a, a disease that's called swamp fever, right? So you can expect that horses positive would be there. Um, unfortunately, in the last 10 years, that demographic has shifted now to this iatrogenic transmission. So we now find cases all over the United States, not just in the Gulf Coast region. Um, historically, the last five or six years, we typically get fewer than 100 cases of EIA found every single year. And that's with a lot of testing going on. We test about one and a half to two million horses per year in the United States. So the prevalence level overall of EIA in the U.S. is very, very small, and that's due to the industry-driven uh, control programs that have been occurring the last 35, 40 years. The issue now is that the percentage of the horses that are positive are in a different demographic than what they used to be. So previously we had these, you know, 80 to 100 cases a year or fewer that were this natural transmission, historically untested, undertested populations. And now what we've switched to is a much larger percentage of the total positives being a different group, these quarter horse race horses with iatrogenic transmission involved and no flyborne transmission at all. So just to give you an example, so far this year we've already found 51 positive cases of EIA and we're only halfway through the year at this point. Of those 51 cases of EIA, 33 of them, or 65 percent, are in quarter horse racehorses with iatrogenic transmission involved and not natural flyborne transmission. So I think one of the key points here for practitioners to know and for owners to know is that these iatrogenic transmission cases are cases that should never happen. They're completely preventable. They're horses that have never should have become infected and unfortunately they've been caught up in these environments where the iatrogenic transmission has caused large clusters of positive horses that then have very limited options for disposition at that point. Well, thank you again, Dr. Pelzel McCloskey, for joining us today on Equimanagement's podcast, Disease Du Jour. And thank you for listening to our podcast. You can hear previous and future episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We hope you will join us in the future for another episode of Disease Du Jour. Mm-hmm.